I write this to you, Theophilus, knowing how much you love God. As you look back at all that was written about this man, Jesus, how he taught, healed, challenged, and loved the people, many did not understand his death, but he came back to life. There is great evidence many people saw him. Miracles of his kingdom have come, like the promised Holy Spirit to those who are waiting. The Spirit of God is on the move, starting a new thing. Life is different now. We no longer fear death. In the great surrender, we are reborn in the resurrection. This is the new beginning. Good morning, everybody. It is. It's a new beginning. Happy uh, post-Easter, everyone. What a great day. I want to start this morning with a sentence. What a great day to be the church. Amen? Amen. 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 I hope that your Easter uh, weekend last weekend uh, was unforgettable. I know mine was, and trying to figure out with baby Anison showing up, but uh, also unforgettable because of the things that God did here. And it is a great day to be the church, and we're just excited. As John said in the announcements this morning, we believe that it's no accident that you're here. We're, we're super excited because it's a great day to be the church, and uh, it's a great day to be at church today, to gather as the church, because today is Discipleship Sunday. How many of you got out of bed this morning? You were so stoked that it was Discipleship Sunday. Yeah, all right. Turn to the person next to you and say, Happy Discipleship Sunday, everybody. <laughs> I know you all got out of bed thinking about that this morning. I know that I did. For 28 weeks now, think about this, for 28 weeks in a row, we've been walking through God's story as a church, and it's been good. It's been awesome. It's been helpful for me. And there's been some high points. There's been some low points. There's been some unexpected points. But 28 weeks going through the Bible from the beginning, working our way all the way to the end, I feel like as I've been reading the story, I've really learned two key things, all right? One is, as human beings, and... You know, if you disagree with this, at least at some point, then you can let me know after the service. But this is one of the things I've learned reading the story. As human beings, there are times in our lives where we like to do our own thing. Am I right? All right, turn to the person next to you and say, hey, you're a rebel. Admit it. You're a rebel. All right? I have spent some time with you outside of worship. I know that we have some rebels in this church, all right? And that's important that, that we start there this morning as we talk about discipleship, as we talk about what does it mean to be the church. I mean, what does it mean to do something with this Easter story, right? You can have all of the fun and all of the spiritual awesomeness that come with Easter as much as you want, but don't we at some point have to ask this question, what does it mean? It's important that we start there understanding that we as humans like to do our own thing, and some of us really like to do our own thing, but what's the other thing that I've learned in this story, and, and I would say it's the more important thing, is that for every step that we take off doing our own thing, heading our own direction, saying, God, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. We have a God that comes after us. Amen? Amen. We have a God that pursues us. We have a God that loves us. And as we've been walking through this story, those two things have resonated so deeply with me. 
I mean, we see human beings doing the things starting very beginning in Genesis, right? In a garden, God gives them everything that they need, everything that they ever wanted. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet. I mean, what, what sounds better than that, right? And yet, he just gives them one simple command, and, and they can't do it. And, and their relationship with God, it's not just they just get a slap on the wrist. Everything about their relationship God, with God changes, except the fact that he still loves them. And so as we begin... Even as you begin that story, as you begin reading the first few chapters of this very book of the Bible, we begin to see that God doesn't just love his people, but he's passionate about getting them back. And God decides, and this is in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, before he even laid the foundations of the earth, God decided that he needed a rescue plan that he was going to come after us and rescue us. And so phase one of this rescue plan is launched, and we talked about this forever, it feels like. We spent a lot of time in the Old Testament this past year talking about this nation, this nation of Israel, and the fact that God raised up this group of people. He gave them promises, and, and he blessed them, and he loved them so that the entire world, because God doesn't just love the people who love him back. God loves the entire world. So they could see this and want to be in relationship with God. And yet, as things, as human beings, it doesn't go according to plan, of course, and so God has to send some prophets to try and get them back, and at the end of the day, it's just, it's not going to be enough. And so God decides it's time for phase two. It's time to take things to the next level. He decides to play the family card, and so he finds his son, Jesus, and he sends him to live and to walk among us for years. And, uh, and he, he's crucified. But as we celebrated last week, he's risen from the, from the dead. The rescue plan carries on. God has made a way for us to be in relationship with him. And yet it continues to go on. And God has done something really interesting. Is one of the craziest things I think that God has ever done is he continues to launch this mission plan. And, and all this stuff has happened with the resurrection he decides to let us be a part of it. Have you ever wondered why God chose to use us as his rescue plan for the rest of the world? In order to do this too, and this is why we're talking about on Discipleship Sunday, God had to figure out how he's going to carry this plan on and how he's going to help us. And so he gave us the gospels. He gave us three years of Jesus' life mapped out for us. Jesus spent three years with 12 guys, 24-7, 365, doing what? teaching them everything that he knew, helping them live life. Because to be a disciple isn't just to do the things Jesus did. That's part of it. But I think Jesus had such a bigger plan for him, to think like Jesus, to feel what Jesus felt. So he sends this group of 12 out to begin and to continue launching this mission and this rescue plan. It's a new phase of the story of God. We're turning the corner here, and we're heading in to an exciting part. So exciting. We're so excited about these last few weeks of story, we decided to make a small banner. You like this? What do you guys think about this, right? How many of you walked in here this morning and you thought, church on fire? What are they going to do? Burn this place down? Right? That's later in the sermon, okay? <laughs> we actually talked about handing out some matches to everybody this morning as a little take-home, because fire is a part of the story, and and John and I are going to talk about it, and he just goes, Andy, you know, we want to be a church on fire, not a church on fire. So if you need a, yeah, whatever, I'll just leave that at that. Like I said, we're a church of rebels, right? 
right? But it's a new phase. It's a new beginning. It's a new chapter of the story. And you guys, it's so exciting because this part of the story, it's your story. I mean, you could, you could start back with the stories that we're going to talk about today, and you could link step by step, day by day, year by year, all the way up today. You are a part of this story, whether you know it or not. So let's dive in and let's take a look at this. If you have your story Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open to page 389. Uh, if you are using the Abundant Life Bible, we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at the story that was just read for us, beautifully read for us, I might add. All right? So page 389, I'm going to start in Acts 1, and I'm actually going to start in verse 4. And we have to understand as we're starting this, as we dig into this story, Jesus spent all this time with these guys, not just with this idea that they would just sit in the nest and not go anywhere, but that they would go out and they would change the world. And yet, as we dive into the story this morning, we find the disciples right where they were but they're ready to bolt. They're not ready to go and to tell. They're ready to bolt. And we know that because the very first words that Jesus has to say to his disciples as he comes in, he says, do not leave Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem is the very heart of the story. It's, it's where all the stuff that we talked about these last few weeks as we've been going through the story went down, and yet the disciples, they're, they're ready to hit the road. They're ready to go back to what they had before the places where they were. In some of the accounts of the Gospels, when Jesus appears to his disciples after he's been killed and is raised, it, just, it says that they had the doors locked. They were freaking out. I'd be freaking out. So this is what Jesus says, though, as he comes to them. He says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water. But in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had talked about this before, so I don't think they were thinking, the holy what? Right? Jesus says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so, I mean, Jesus made a pretty clear point, and they continue the conversation, and, and they're interested. They want to know more, and so they come and they say, it says they gathered around him, and then they ask him a question. And it's an interesting question because in a snapshot, it gives you exactly where they're at, exactly what's on their minds as they've been in chaos for the last week or so. It says, they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they get this idea that Jesus is a king, but they've still got the wrong kingdom. If Jesus taught us anything... We talked about this as we talked about Jesus being the Son of God. They've, for centuries, God's people have been oppressed. They've been persecuted. They've had people telling them what to do. And they're so hungry for this freedom that they want a revolution. But the thing about Jesus is that his kingdom is not on earth. His kingdom is in heaven. And there's a revolution. Make no mistake about it. But it's a revolution on the inside. It's not a revolution on the outside. So he responds to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father is set by his own authority. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible right here. But he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He makes a promise to him. He says, things are going to change. And he doesn't just give them the promise and but he tells them how things are going to change. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. If you look up at this map, I mean, you've got the entire Roman Empire up here. And right now, they're down in the lower right-hand corner. They're in Jerusalem, but Jesus is saying, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to take this thing, this movement that I've started, you're going to take it to the very ends of the earth. And I think it's interesting that Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. I mean, when I think of witnesses, I start to think of courtrooms and testimonies and stories and things you saw. And if you think about it, that's exactly what a witness does. They, they talk about things that they've seen, right? They see something, and then they turn, and they talk about it. And that's exactly what it is. That's what this rescue mission looks like. It looks like us as the people of God, seeing what God is doing. And last week, we had some powerful things to witness here. Did you witness the witnessing that was going on here as people bravely got up and shared their stories on a piece of cardboard, who they were before God came into their life and who they came after? God wants them to witness, to see what's going on, to look at their own stories, to look at how their lives are changed and to turn and tell them about it. And if they can do this, if they can do this, then they can fill Jesus' final instructions to them. We call it the Great Commission. And I've got it up here on the screen. And this is a little bit different translation. But if you think about it, what is the role of us as the church? What is it that Jesus is he's wrapping up phase two of his movement and is getting ready for this new beginning? These are the instructions that he gets us. And let's read this together. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it continues, then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you. I'll be with you as you do this, day after day, day, to the very end of the age. So he sent them out. And wouldn't you know it, in the very next page, just a few days later, as he sent them out with this promise, you will receive the Holy Spirit, you will have power. I mean, who doesn't need a little more power, huh? Power is a good thing. So he promises power, and wouldn't you know, just as he always does, God shows up. Because again, we have a God that loves us, that he goes after us. And so I invite you, if you have your story Bibles, to turn to the next page, because God shows up in an amazing way. This is the story of Pentecost, and it's, it's chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. You know, I mean, we've had some windy days in Iowa here, right? That's not, that's not too, too crazy. But then it does get crazy. It says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, I just got to ask you this morning, if we're sitting here in this nice little church gathering, right, and I'm sitting here talking, and all of a sudden, we may just burn this church down, actually. I don't know. We'll see. Right? Oh, seriously? <laughs> this is why you're supposed to practice these things. Or we just bought cheap matches. I'm not sure. I'm going to move it slowly. Does this look weird to any of you? So what's going on there? What's going on there? There's tongues of fire over people's heads, and you know that this isn't just any random gathering of people. But it says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and began to speak in other tongues. As the Spirit enabled them, now they were staying, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. There's tons of people from all over the place in Jerusalem. There's been a lot going on. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken and utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears in our own language? There's fire, there's people babbling, there's all sorts of stuff going on. And so it says, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? As I just said, what's going on there? And it's at that point that Peter, Peter, this one who we've talked about has been famous to be the last to think and the first to speak. He tends to put his foot in his mouth a lot, right? It's then that Peter steps up to preach and he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. And as he gets going, don't you just wonder, don't you just think that the, uh, his fellow disciples, even Jesus himself, was probably sitting up there in heaven thinking, oh, here we go again, right? Right? We've all been there when that person gets up to speak. It was, and you just think, oh, I have no idea what's going to come out of this person's mouth, right? But Peter goes on to preach. And here's the thing. As Peter goes on to preach, it makes sense. And it's powerful. And he goes and he makes two points. He says, number one, all of you who are gathered here, this is what's going on. Number one, Jesus is alive. And number two, he sent us this Holy Spirit. And Peter preaches with the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that people's lives are changed. And it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized. Right? You've got thousands of people. In fact, it says that 3,000, 3,000 were added to their number that day. Do you think there was something going on there? Absolutely. What would we do if 3,000 people showed up at this church on a Sunday? I'll tell you what. We'd need to get some more chairs. That's, that's a start. All right? 3,000 people are added. And we have a little phrase we use here, Hope Des Moines. We say it all the time. And, and maybe you know what it means. Maybe you don't. But we say that God is on the move. Say, God is on the move. Because God is on the move. And when we say that, we mean exactly what we celebrated last weekend with Easter, that God is taking the dying things of this world, whether it's relationships, whether it's people, whether it's sickness, whatever it, whatever it is, oppression, evil, disaster, God's taking those situations and those things and he's resurrecting them to life. God is on the move. And we say that here because we have some really exciting things, right? God is on the move. And again, if this is a representation of what our church service is like, I mean, this is what happens when God is on the move. There's a flame there. I know you can't see it, but... Right? Thank you. I'm glad you can see it. Right? If God is on the move here, then what did it look like? If that's our illustration for what it looked like at Pentecost, then what did it look like on Pentecost itself? Maybe if... If that match represents what God's Spirit looks like in our church service here, I wonder if Pentecost didn't look a little something like this. Let's take a look. Now, I talked to our creative team wondering how we could recreate that in the middle of Des Moines so we could have like a nice illustration, and they're like, you know, we're not going to be able to get the permits to do that. So, all right? When you look at a blast like that, 430 miles, 
four, I'll say it again, 430 miles. That's how far away from that blast they felt that shock wave to the point where it broke the windows. What's 430 miles from here? It's a long ways away, right? Maybe Canada? That's how far, I mean, the effects of that blast were felt enormously, quite a distance around. And the same is true about Pentecost. Because God showed up. A community was born, and this isn't just any random group of people that was born that came together that experienced the Holy Spirit for the first time with power, but this was the church. And it's a church that's on fire. Now, it all begins in Jerusalem, and Jesus is handing the baton. But this is where the story of the church begins. This is where our story as a group of people begins. And as you look at this map, what started down there in that corner with 3,000 people, right? Jesus had his group of 12 and expanded to 3,000 people. Estimates say, and we don't have hard date on this, but they say 100 years later, there were 10,000 people. But 200 years later, 60 million I said that wrong. Six million people, 60% of that entire geographical area, 60% of that group became Christians. That's 10% of the entire population. And then you got to ask yourself, how did that happen? What did it look like? What is it that we're missing out on today? As you look at this, as you think about the church, I mean, it's really great to, it's a great question to think about. What is the church? And Scripture talks about, you know, it gives us some ideas of what it is. It means that we're the body of Christ. Scripture talks about us being the bride of Christ, the family of God, right? Some would say that the church is supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Others would say church is just something that you go to, right? What is the first thing that you think of when you hear the word church, especially maybe the church that you grew up in? I mean, I think about things like hymnals and committees and really boring sermons and and all sorts of that. But what is it for you when you hear that word church? What is that illustration or what is that thing that comes to mind? I mean, what if church was a word that when we heard it, we stopped what we were doing? And we gave it respect because of the, the unbelievable power that it has. What if, what if church was something that was so powerful that we we're very careful with how we handled it, not because of the fear that it, it puts in people, but because of the good that it could do. There's a book that came out in 2011. It's called Lost in America. And it's talking about the state of the church, kind of where we're at in America with all of these things. And there was a shocking sentence in there that, that grabbed our attention. When they sent out a survey, and I want to make sure that I get this right, asking the results of all Americans, right, they, they did a sample and they asked if they would ever consider church as they know it today as something worth being a part of, right? How many people do you think said yes? Less than half, right? If we have a church that's on fire, that, that it has an experience that looks something like that in its, in its own way, and it takes over the entire map of the world as they knew it at the time, and yet we're sitting here in a country today where more than half of the population doesn't think that it's worth being a part of, then what are we missing? Where did we go wrong? Think about this. If people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, then wouldn't people who were nothing like Jesus now like his church? 
It's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, we're experiencing growth here, and we're having a lot of fun, and God is on the move at Hope Des Moines, and we're excited about that. But what if there's more? What if it's time for us to think about the church? What does it mean for us as Pentecost people, as people who are spirited and Christ-centered and growing? What does it mean for us to be the church? Maybe there's more, and maybe it's time to rethink. So let's take a look at this video and ask yourself, what does it mean to be the church? Lately, it seems that we're getting more and more confused about what a church actually is. So let's take some time to set the record straight. Church is not a building, though a building can be used by a church. Church is not a denomination, though a set of beliefs should be important to a church. Church is not about Sunday, though a church should not forsake meeting together. Church is not about one person or personality, though every church should be pastored. And church is not about size or growth, though every church is called to make disciples. So don't think of church as an address or a location, but rather think of church as mobile and on the move. Don't think of church as something built or planted, but rather think of church as something deployed. Don't think of church as where you are for an hour each week, but rather what you are every day of the week, because the church is the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Feet shouldn't sit still. Hands shouldn't be idle. Feet go. Hands do. This is the church. Church isn't what you're sitting through right now, because you are the church. Now go and be the church. What if God has something more for us? What if the most, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, the most exciting thing about me getting to come to church is I get to drink coffee and eat donut holes, right? Maybe that's where you're at. And I tell you what, if anybody in this room is excited about drinking coffee and eating donut holes on Sunday mornings, it's this guy, all right? I'm, I'm one of those guys that fills up the cup and takes it to the chair when I'm not preaching. I, I enjoy the donut holes, but what if God has something more for us? What if there's more than sitting here in your chair and listening to somebody else talk about the Bible? What if there's more to the story? What if for every step the world takes away from the story of God as it moves more and more secular, we move more and more to look more like this church that we see in Acts, this church that's on fire? What if God has something more for us because this church is on fire and the world, the people around you, think about the people in your life that need a community like this, that need the kind of God that you can believe in, the God that shows up, the God that brings the dead things in our lives back to reality. Well, as I said earlier, Pentecost came and the promise was fulfilled and the Holy Spirit took this group of people over. But this morning, we've got to ask ourselves, what does that look like? So if you have your story Bibles, I want to look at chapter 2, and I want to look at some specific verses that point out and just paint this beautiful picture of what the church looks like when the Holy Spirit takes over. When the Holy Spirit runs the show, two things happen. One, the church gathers, but also the church scatters. So first, let's talk about the gathering, and it's, it's in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'm on page 392, and take a look at this. And as I read this to you, just think about, is that a group of people that I would want to be a part of? 
I love this passage. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. And they kind of took it to the extreme. It says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. What if there's something more? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of all of the people. This is the church. The people that looked nothing like Jesus liked this church. The favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Have you ever seen a church like this? I think it happens around here often. But the thing is, this church, this church, it gathers. And it doesn't just gather so we can have little social clubs and waste a bunch of time, right? Read a bunch of stuff and then think, oh, that's cool, and then do nothing with it. No, the reason why this church gathers is to hear the good news, but not just to hear the good news, to experience the good news. And in reality, the reason why this church gathers is because for you and I, as we come together, as God shows up, right, as as the Holy Spirit drops these atomic bombs on us of new life, we become good news. And my question to you this morning is, have you or are you, as you've been walking with God, as a disciple, as a, as a follower of Jesus, are you becoming more and more good news? Because the reality is we could gather, we could get together, but unless we invite God to be a part of the process, then we're probably just going to be the same people. This is why we do life groups. This is why we get people together regularly because... Something happens when we come together, and as I was thinking about this, I started thinking about my week and, and just the, the, the ways that I needed the church, because there's this thing that happens. Maybe you're a part of a small group, maybe you're not. I'm going to move this over so I don't kill the microphone. All right? This reality, as we come together as the church, right, when you show up to a small group, when you show up to life group, you bring who you are with you, right? Wherever you go, there you are. And I started thinking about my week, and I started thinking about some of the pride that I've had, right? And it's not like my pride is over here, and I'm right there, right? Jesus, as he's talking about the church, as he says, in the image of God that you've been created, you are the light of the world, If this world is a very dark place, you are the light of the world. And yet, as we, as human beings, we experience pride, we have sin, right? That image gets distorted. And it doesn't burn quite as well. I kept thinking about my week on these positive notes, and I began to think about how selfish I've been, right? There are times when I do not take, I do not take the hard road. I don't do the right thing all the time. In fact, I'm selfish, and so yet, I, when I show up into this community, I have another layer. And by the way, this is just another attempt by me to burn this church down. So I'm going to put some fire, right? Right? I wrote cranky on a paper bag. I know you guys don't believe this, but even pastors can get cranky. I know you don't believe that, but... Right? And here's the thing. As I look at this, as I began to realize the state of who I am, right? Impatience. Have you ever been a parent of small children? I mean, seriously. It takes a lot of patience. Wouldn't that be so cool if this just caught on fire? 
right? But what's happened to the image of God in this? I've done this before and it's never happened, so don't worry. But, all right? It's really hard to see. And we bring these masks, we wear these things, and we pretend, yeah, I mean, this is what I hear so often around churches. Yeah, how are you? Yeah, everything's fine, right? The F word, fine. Let's, maybe you're fine, that's great. Praise God for that. But if you're not, how can we be the kind of church that does this, right? Where we're genuine with one another, where we experience what's going on. Because when we gather and when we hear the good news, right, when we get to that point, if we spend enough time together where I have to take the mask on because I'm dying and I need some oxygen, right, if you still love me, and that's how you figure out who your real brothers and sisters in Christ are, the people that still love you, not when you're fake you, but when you're real you, if they still love you, that's when you experience the good news. And as you hear this good news, and as you experience this good news, you become good news. And my question again to you this morning is, well, what's on your bag, right? What are the 72 bags like me that you have that are, that are hiding the, the image of God from you? But are you becoming good news? That's why we do life groups. It's not so we can have JV and varsity Christians in this church, right? Life groups are not a life sentence, by the way. They're given to you so they can produce life, so God can produce life in you. When the church gathers, this is what happens, and yet at the same time, not only do we gather as a church, but we gather so we can become good news. And as we become good news, we take the good news with us wherever we go. Because here's the reason why we're all nervous this morning about all this fire. And I seriously wanted to have a blowtorch in here, but they wouldn't let me do it. Right? Here's the thing about fire. If I had a can of gasoline over there and I threw this over there, you all would run. Because fire spreads. So it's one thing to be good news, to become good news, but isn't it another to go out into the world and to be good news? And there's this great stories. I mean, the entire book of Acts is filled with people that are going and be good news. And, and one day, Peter and John, they're going to the temple. They're going to gather with their friends, right, with their spiritual family. And they run across a guy who needs healing, and they heal him. I mean, that's what it looks like to be good news. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're just thinking, Andy, that sounds really great, but, you know, I'm just a teacher. I mean, how can I be good news? I'm just a stay-at-home mom. How can, how can I be good news? What does it look like for us as Hope Des Moines to be good news? And, and as I was thinking about this as well, a while back I came across this story from ESPN, the magazine, and I felt like this was such a great picture a great answer to this question, what does it look like as we gather but as we scatter to be good news? And so I want to I read this to you. And if you know anything, well, I'll just read you the first sentence. It says, they played the oddest game in high school football history last month in Grapevine, Texas. And if you know anything about Texas, when it comes to football, I mean, there's a lot of things you don't mess with Texas about, right? But one of them is football. And so I want to read you the story about this game that took place in Texas. It was Grapevine Faith versus Gainesville State School, and everything about it was upside down. For instance, when the Gainesville group came out to take the field, the Faith fans, that's the fans from the other team, they made a 40-yard sprint line for them to run through. Did you hear that? The other team's fans, 
They even made a banner for the players to crash through, and it said, go tornadoes, which is also weird because faith, they're the lions. All right? It was rivers running uphill and cats petting dogs. More than 200 faith fans sat on the Gainesville side and kept cheering the Gainesville players on by name. I never in my life thought I'd hear people cheering for us to hit their kids, recalls the quarterback and middle linebacker named Isaiah. I wouldn't expect another parent to tell somebody to hit their kids, but they wanted us to. (laughs) And even though faith walloped them, that's the Christian school, walloped them 33 to 14, the Gainesville kids were so happy that after the game, they gave their head coach, Mark Williams, a sideline squirt bottle shower like he just won state. It's got to be the first Gatorade bath in history for an 0-9 coach. But then you saw the 12 uniformed officers escorting the Gainesville players off the field, and two and two started to make four. They lined the players up in groups of five, handcuffs in their back pockets, and marched them to the team bus. And that's because Gainesville is a maximum security correctional facility 75 miles north of Dallas. Every game it plays is on the road. This all started when Faith's head coach, uh, Chris Hogan, wanted to do something kind for the Gainesville team. Faith had never played Gainesville, but he already knew the score. After all, Faith was 7-2, and two, Gainesville was 0-8, and eight, and they'd had two TDs, two touchdowns all season. Faith has 70 kids, 11 coaches, the latest equipment, involved parents. Gainesville has a lot of kids with convictions for drugs, assault, and robbery, many of whose families have disowned them wearing seven-year-old shoulder pads and ancient helmets. So Hogan had this idea. What if half of our fans, for one night only, cheered for the other team? And he sent an email asking the faith to do that. He said, here's the message I want you to send. You are just as valuable as any other player, person on the planet. Some were naturally confused. One faith player walked into Hogan's office and said, coach, why are we doing this? And Hogan said, imagine if you didn't have a home life. Imagine if everybody you knew had given up on you. And the next thing you know, the Gainesville Tornadoes were turning around on their bench to see something they had never seen before. Hundreds of fans and cheerleaders. And I thought maybe they were confused, said Alex, one of the Gainesville linemen. They started yelling defense when their team had the ball. And I said, what? Why are they cheering for us? It was a strange experience for boys that most people cross the street to avoid. And we can tell people are a little afraid of us when we come to the game, says Gerald, who a lineman who will end up doing more than three years. You can see it in their eyes. They're looking at us. But these people, they were yelling for us by their names. So maybe it figures that Gainesville played better than it had all season, scoring the game's last two touchdowns. Of course, maybe this had something to do with the third-string nose guard being at safety and the third-string cornerback playing defensive end, but still. And here's where it gets good. After the game, both teams gathered in the middle of the field to pray, and that's when Isaiah, the guy I talked about earlier, the quarterback, surprised everybody by asking if he could lead the prayer. We had no idea what this kid was going to say. Sounds a lot like Peter, doesn't it? We had no idea what this kid was going to say, the coach said, but Isaiah said this, Lord, I don't know how this happened, so I don't know how to say thanks. But I never knew there were so many people in the world that cared about us. 
And it was a good thing everybody's heads were bowed because they might have seen Hogan wiping tears away. As the tornadoes walked back to their bus under guard, they each were handed a bag for the ride home, a burger, some fries, some candy, a Bible, and a letter from each of the team members from the faith team that played their same position. The Gainesville coach saw Hogan, grabbed him hard by the shoulders, and said, you'll never know what your people did for these kids tonight. You're never going to know. And as the bus pulled away, the Gainesville players crammed to one side and pressed their hands to the window, staring at these people that they'd never met before, watching their waves and smiles disappearing into the night with all that is going on in the world these days. Isn't it nice to know that one of the best presents that you can give is still absolutely free? The gift of hope. Isn't there a chance that there's something more than what we've been experiencing as a church? And we have a great church. I don't want you to hear this sermon this morning and think, man, we've got a lot of work to do. But the thing is, as a disciple, the journey never ends, right? I mean, there's never some day where you wake up and people start mistaking you for being Jesus himself, right? Maybe if that's you, then, you know, maybe you should be up here preaching. But the journey doesn't end. And so what if, what if there's more? What if there's another step in this journey? What if God is calling you to give something to the world? I mean, maybe it's something as simple as this. But it probably looks different because it looks like you. Whatever it is. What's next for you as a part of this church? Right? God calls us to gather and he calls us to scatter. But what is the next step for you in that process? What is the next step in growing to becoming even better news? Maybe you're new. Maybe this is the second week you're here. You got drug here for Easter and you thought, hey, they had donut holes. I'll come back, right? Maybe you're new. Maybe you've been around a while, but you just don't feel that well connected. It's time to get in a life group. It's time to sign up and serve a shelter meal or, or do something. You can set up chairs, Right? Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking, you know, if 3,000 people showed up, it would just be a pain in our rear end and, and maybe you're just a little too comfortable, right? Maybe it's time to jump out of the boat, to walk on water like Peter did. Maybe it's time to step out of your comfort zone and, and to serve. And maybe there's some of you that have been all in from the very beginning and, and we have some rock stars in this church. I mean... You give and you give and you give. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, but isn't there something more? Isn't there another level? And, and to you, I want to say this morning, I see this incredible need in our church. And it's not that we're not doing anything about it, but it's a need and we have to do something about it. I see so many people here that are hungry for somebody to be their spiritual parents. Right? And when I've got up here and talked about parenting, I tend to point out the negatives and how tired I am and how they don't listen. And, and I'm not talking about that side of parenting. I'm talking about walking with people, being in their lives, and helping them answer those two big questions of discipleship. Every disciple is supposed to be trying to figure out what is God saying to me and what am I supposed to be doing about it? How, there's so many things. Help, help me, people are saying. Help me understand the story. There are so many things about following Jesus that you can't learn by reading a book. And so we need more spiritual parents in this congregation. And yet, I think a lot of us, 
when we hear that it's out of our comfort zones and we think there's no way I could do that we get the just a disease that John has talked about I'm just a teacher I'm just a stay at home mom I'm just a volunteer right but let's go back to these people in the book of Acts because I think my I don't know I have a lot of favorite verses in the Bible but Acts 4.13 is a verse that I will never forget because Peter and John as they've been going around as they've been healing people as they've been telling shouting from the rooftops all this stuff about Jesus as they've been being the church they get into trouble and they're in court and they have to defend themselves and they give this great argument and you got to wonder where did that come from right anybody relate to that being in trouble and having no idea how you're going to get your way out of it and yet this is what those people who were trying to condemn these men this is what somebody in the room that day wrote down about their observation it says when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled unschooled they were ordinary men they were astonished what if we were a church when people saw us in action scattered they were astonished at what God is doing here and they took note that these people had been with Jesus like I said the journey never ends and it's never really that easy in fact I feel like the more that I read the Bible and the more that I walk with Jesus the more that I realize like I don't I don't know what I'm doing it's really difficult and Jesus knew that it was going to be like that for us. And so I want to invite you to stand this morning. Jesus knows that it's going to be difficult. And so it's for that reason in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Take and eat this body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's why after the meal, it's why he took the cup and he gave thanks. He blessed it and he gave it for them to drink saying, this is my blood. It's a new covenant shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so as we prepare to receive the Lord's body and his blood this morning, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, his followers, that Jesus taught his church. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.